Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. From the laboratory perspective, and not a lawyer, but I've done enough, when I was in the commercial sector, I did enough in civil litigation to see some of the difference between civil-type proceedings and criminal that you just don't see in criminal scientific work deposition. You just don't see what is commonplace in civil litigation of expert pinning an A26A statement prior to the trial and that everybody is aware of what the expert is going to opine to before you're at trial. And it just doesn't exist in criminal work. Often the experts showing up to the trial an hour before walking in there. If you're lucky, you might see the prosecutor on your way to the stand. I mean, that's it. Um, and I suppose a lot of that comes back again to resources. Neither the prosecutors nor what's often the public defender's office nor the laboratory have the resources to deal with a legitimate deposition, to deal with the research about what an expert is going to opine to all of that research that goes into the pretrial preparation that you see in the civil world. In the civil world, you get depositions. There are not that many states where you're allowed to question a witness before a trial in criminal cases. Discovery in criminal cases is pretty thin. I mean, Texas has, has a broad discovery statute that came out of the wrongful conviction of Michael Morton. It's called the Michael Morton Act. But in most states, you know, if you plead guilty, you may not be entitled to any discovery at all, or prosecutors are in many places allowed to tell you, by the way, if you want to see discovery or documents, then I'm, I'm not going to give you such a nice plea offer. In many places, prosecutors themselves don't get a report that has any of the underlying notes or detail. Certainly, like getting to interview someone or actually do a formal deposition on the record before a criminal trial. Many places, you don't even get a list of who the prosecution is going to call at the trial, the witness list, before the trial begins. Sort of trial by ambush in criminal cases. And why is it that there's like really rigorous protections and due process in civil cases about money, but not in criminal cases, which are about life and liberty? I think you might have answered it when you said it was about money. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I worked on civil cases, you get to spend all day questioning the expert. You would in beforehand get expert reports. You'd get to see all the material that the expert relied on. I mean, really detailed exchange of big piles of documents. Uh, and then you get to question the expert all day. Uh, long before a trial. Uh, nothing like that exists in, in criminal cases in this country. You mentioned that, you know, when the plea process is happening, there's even less rights to disclosures. Have you looked at or have other experts looked at the impact that that has on false confessions? Yeah. So there's there's been some research looking at just like what happens when people hear that the forensics is a match. It kind of goes both ways. Like law enforcement are getting information from multiple sources. Uh, there's definitely been wrongful convictions, for example, where someone has falsely confessed. And so they tell the crime lab, you don't need to do a DNA test. You don't need to test stuff. This guy confessed. So just leave the evidence alone. So it, it can go that way where the forensics are altered because the prosecutors are so moved by a confession. We've also seen evidence ploys. And sometimes it's not, it's, it's like there was no testing of the evidence. They just sort of tell someone in the interrogation room, oh, by the way, your DNA is a total match. Like we, we have you nailed with the forensics. No, you know, we know you did it. 
it would just be helpful if you told us the details of how you did it. And so it's a false evidence ploy designed to get the, the confession. This happened really in a, lots of well-known cases, including like the exonerated five cases involving you know, the Central Park jogger. You know, they were told your DNA is on the, the jogger shorts. Now, that wasn't like a crime lab error. They, in fact, later, DNA testing hadn't even been done at that time. Later, actually, the test results showed, you know, excluded those kids. They were convicted anyway, but, but they hadn't done a test, you know, at the point, like whatever it was, like the day after the jogger was found when they had the kids, you know, on camera interrogating them for hours and hours and hours that was made up. You don't need real forensics to, you know, do a false evidence ploy and coerce people in the interrogation room. You know, we got your prints, we got your DNA, confess. And, and that said, there have also been studies that shown, like, do people think that the forensics are more reliable if they heard that someone has confessed? Yeah, you're really biased by information like that. And that's an important, it's another factor in independence, that if it's a sort of a crime lab in, embedded within a within law enforcement and the detectives are calling all the time saying, have you, have you checked those prints? You know, we're pretty sure it's his prints because he can totally confess to everything that may affect, you know, the care with which you look at the fingerprints. Or worse, you know, letting them know about how horrific the crime was or, you know, details about the victim. And, you know, we've, we've looked at, you know, some colleagues at the University of Virginia looked at just even the evidence submission sheets that a lot of crime labs use. Some of them like openly call for biasing information, like the guy's criminal record and like on the cover of the sheet where you're asking them to test something, putting aside like how about if the detective calls and, and t- tells you all kinds of stuff about the case. There's a lot of research now on cognitive bias. There's a very high profile study that just came out looking at medical examiners and what happens when they are told that the kid that died was white versus black and whether the relative caring for the kid was a boyfriend or grandparent. That kind of information can be really biasing and it can alter your conclusion as a medical examiner. Like, was this a homicide or not? Uh, They've done the same thing, you know, fingerprint studies, DNA studies, all sorts of these human factors can impact the work. And that's why building in these kind of quality controls and checks is is really important. You mentioned how defense attorneys are, are often not living up to what we would hope. What about the judges? Shouldn't they be able to to see injustice happening or to see that, you know, this particular scientific data might need some questioning? Traditionally, their approach has been like on or off. Like, is this person an expert? If so, and they're doing something reliable, let them take the stand. And if there's a problem with what they're saying, if they're not citing the right studies, if their conclusions seem amped up, whatever, that's for the defense lawyer to bring out in cross-examination. That's where the crucible of the court comes in. Once the judge lets the person be an expert, then the judge just watches the trial. Judges aren't supposed to intervene. Let the jurors figure it out. And the judge's role is also, you know, almost entirely non-existent, by the way, in like the 95% of cases where there's is, the result is plea bargained. And there you're just depending on the lawyers. Like if there's a forensics report, you hope that they looked at it. And maybe they did more than just like they heard that the forensics matched and they actually read the report. Well, in most places, it's the report may actually not tell them much. It may be like a one-liner saying you read the report and there's lots of language about like what the items were numbered as and what date they were collected. But then there's like a line saying these cartridge cases were identified as having come from object B12. And that's it. Just a, like a one-liner. It's a match, basically. And so what, what is a lawyer supposed to do with that? Even if they read it carefully, all it says is it's a match. They're not given more information about what methods were used, what's the uncertainty, you know, what was done, what was documented. And so maybe understandable that, that many lawyers figure just like many jurors do that if their court says it's a match, then I guess it's a match. And so we've just, you know, this is not like, you know, in the doctor's office, if 
the doctor said, you know, I've done some x-rays. It's a tumor. It's a match. You wouldn't say, oh, okay, bring me into surgery. You might say, well, like, I wasn't feeling anything. Like, you know, tell me about how you concluded this. And before I, you put me on the table, I might like a second opinion or uh, I want to understand how you reached that conclusion. That's a really big deal. We don't treat these things as a really big deal in criminal cases, despite the consequences. Let's move into the crime labs themselves and talk about some of the issues that have led to problems in the criminal justice system. First off, let's talk about funding. These labs aren't exactly uniformly well-funded. Some of them have funding issues. Forensic laboratories have historically been at the short end of that receiving line. There's a lot of things that go under that. Of the 411, roughly, publicly funded crime laboratories in the country, almost all of those fall inside of a law enforcement agency. Forensic sciences kind of grew out of law enforcement. It makes logical sense for its outgrowth. It also is kind of, I think most people understand the inherent conflict of interest of this scientific objective evidence being produced inside of law enforcement that has a very clear role in the entire justice system. Separate issue there. But for the crime laboratory inside of law enforcement, it's very difficult for law enforcement to understand the needs of a, of a crime lab. That is part of what happened here in Houston, why Houston was what Houston was, is necessarily in a law enforcement agency that is, has its own funding challenges, funding is going to go to cruisers, it's going to go to patrol, it's going to go to acute public safety issues before it's going to go to the crime lab. So the crime lab inside of a law enforcement agency may be able to piggyback, if you will, on funding that may be able to maybe available to law enforcement, but it's always going to be at the end of the line of the funding priorities for a chief of police. And that, that's not a wrong thing. It's not a wrong choice on the part of the chief of police. It's a wrong result for the rest of the system. We here in Houston are probably one of the better funded crime laboratories in the country. And I have about $800 per request. If I just do very gross back of the envelope calculation of dollars in the budget to number of requests that we have. On average, out of the last census of publicly funded crime labs, which is done every five years, tells you something about the priority of people looking at this already. The most current data are still out of 2014, but if you look at those data, the kind of back of the envelope average dollars per request is about 400 bucks a request. So that's 400 bucks to receive the evidence, accession the evidence, process the evidence, testify about the evidence, preserve the evidence, store the evidence, whole nine yards, 400 bucks. I worked in a commercial laboratory as a toxicologist, did expert testimony stuff. I didn't see all of this, but the company billed my time out at 350 bucks an hour. You just It's just not even in the correct number of zeros, the scale of funding. At the federal level, the entire federal budget for forensic laboratory kind of support Almost the entirety of it flows through Department of Justice. That entire budget is about $200 million a year. So that's $200 million a year shared between those 400 crime labs. It's not even the right number of zeros. It's a little bit better in this proposed budget at the federal level right now. There are some increases. Yay. They didn't increase the number of zeros that are attached to it, which is really the kind of change that needs to be talked about. To do this stuff right is expensive. When you do it wrong, 
it's even more expensive. Well, just to just to give a concrete example, they've spent thirty million plus in Massachusetts. Originally, it was sort of like this is a bad apple problem. We, we've discovered that not one but two examiners at two different drug labs, and there are really two labs that do most of the work in Massachusetts to test drugs from crime scenes. They're like, oh, they were actually using all the drugs and the sample drugs rather than doing the testing. Like doing drugs is a colloquialism for like testing drugs, but they they were taking a little literally. And it's tedious work, and here and there they would use drugs to sort of make the day go by, and then they started using a lot of drugs to make the day go by really well, and then were consuming like all the drugs in the lab. But what what emerged after a couple of years of investigation is, okay, you don't have people blatantly not actually testing the drugs and faking all their results and getting away with it for years and years without everyone else in the lab doing terribly low-quality work too. And they what, they what ended up coming out was uh, like the work of the labs in general was... You know, they weren't cleaning the machines out. The work, you know, if you leave the cocaine in a machine over time, it will say everything is cocaine. There were just horrible quality practices in these labs. They ultimately decided we need to throw out all of the work that these labs did for years. You know, tens and tens of thousands. It's up to like 70,000 or so cases needed to be reversed, unwound. But most of those people pretty guilty, already served their time. Anyway, enormous expense already, tens of millions of dollars. There'll be much more spent to continue to unwind the problem. And so, yeah, these errors are enormously expensive. And often, once they come to light, it's too late to actually make it right in terms of the people whose lives were affected. For crime labs, we pose a disproportionate risk to whatever municipality, state, you know, the governance that is responsible for the crime labs. And we pose a risk if we get it wrong or if we get it slow. Just using Houston as an example... The George Rodriguez case is, I think, a really good example for us to use. So George Rodriguez, when he was exonerated, he qualified for compensation for that uh, exoneration. And he sued the city of Houston for uh, civil liberties infringement and prevailed. So all of that together was something in the neighborhood of about $7 million. One lab, one error, $7 million. So we do about 30,000 requests a year. So if you take just a straight line calculation of the risk that that presents, so $7 million times 30,000 requests a year, that's about $200 billion worth of risk that this one laboratory poses to the city of Houston every year. There's another way of thinking about this, which Peter and I described in a short op that we wrote together. Is, I mean, there's a lot of debate in this country about police funding and what do we need police to do? because it keeps us safe? And what do we not need police to do because it's not relevant to keeping us safe? You know, most police agencies spend an enormous number of hours like doing traffic stops and giving out tickets. Like you don't necessarily need people with guns giving tickets. You can have red light cameras, speeding cameras, or just not, you know, stop a million people a year in a given state over traffic stuff that doesn't really relate to dangerous driving. That's a whole other conversation about police use of force, policing, what do we want? One of the defenses, though, of the traditional police function is, well, but we need we need law enforcement to solve the most serious crimes, maybe now more than ever with the rise in shootings and homicides in this country. But one response to that at the sort of next level of police funding argument is, well, wait a minute, if you want to solve the most serious crimes, you don't want untrained officers going to that crime scene and breathing their DNA all over the evidence or moving the stuff around. And like you need scientists from a crime lab supervising that scene to make sure that there is integrity to the evidence. In any given city, you look at the clearance rate for homicides, and murders are hard to solve. But clearance rates are really low, and you don't improve crime solving 
by spending money primarily on police. So there's a lot of detective work that a crime lab can't help with, but there's also a lot of work that only a crime lab can do. And in most places, you don't have like you do in Houston, where people from the lab with a science background are there at the scene, making sure that the evidence is collected with integrity. If anything, you have police departments, and this is a whole other thing that you don't want to get Peter started on. They're even getting funding to kind of test evidence in the field on their own without having real lab staff test it, a whole other disastrous problem. And so as part of our conversations about, well, what what do we need police for? Where should the funding go? We need to be thinking about crime labs and science. Even in those hardest cases, the most serious cases, the cases that we associate with the core of the policing function, actually, maybe not so much. Maybe it's more a science function. To Brandon's point there as well, we, we talk an awful lot, and many of these conversations like this focus on scientific underpinnings, how many points of minutia are sufficient for an identification in a latent print, and mixture interpretation, and probabilistic genotyping, and lots of big, long, sciencey words, and there's science issues, and I contend often, yes, there are very real science issues that we can't ignore. However, in all the years I've been running laboratories, most of what jams up labs, most of what goes sideways in labs isn't the science part. It's getting the right sample into the right tube with the right test, the right result out of that, onto the right report, back to the right person. It's engineering around that science. And I, talking about the, imp the impact of defense attorneys and what goes on in court, I wish attorneys would ask more about was the right piece of evidence actually submitted to the laboratory and tested. It is a routine issue of evidence that laboratories receive, mislabeled, upside down, backwards, damaged, contaminated, and the consequences that fall to the laboratory, because we're in a big building and we can't run away and we're the ones that did all the sciencey stuff on it, so we get stuck with questions about it. They send you the wrong thing, you're going to get the wrong answer no matter what. Doesn't matter how good the science is in the laboratory, if I got crap coming in the door, your result's going to be pretty much crap coming out the other end. So when we talk about forensic science issues, you have to include evidence management, property management, evidence quality, how the evidence is collected, reporting systems, the IT systems, language on those reports. It's more than just the science-y part that's about this much of the whole equation. Why don't we move into quality control? I suppose in order to get into the topic, maybe you can give us a look from the high level. Uh, what are some of the key issues, the concerns in quality control uh, that you've seen in, in your work or in your study? Fundamentally, what is, I find, even now, still shocking to most people is across the country, it is a very mixed bag of requirements for laboratories to be accredited and for forensic personnel to be licensed. It's actually a minority of states that have any kind of legislative requirement for the lab to be accredited and like personnel to be licensed. Texas is one of those states that requires the lab to be accredited, personnel to be licensed. But even in Texas, there's only five disciplines that actually fall under that. Crime scene, latent prints, multimedia evidence do not have to be licensed or accredited in the state by statute. And this is something that, yeah, it sounds hyperbolic, it's great for the sound bite, but your hairdresser, okay, not my hairdresser, but your hairdresser has more licensure requirements than your average forensic scientist. Licensure and accreditation don't solve everything. 
I also try to point out accreditation is merely the minimum. When I lived in North Carolina, it worked really well because the restaurant inspection system ran on letter scores, ABC. You could stay in business down to having a C on the wall. So I put it to people. Walking into a laboratory and seeing their accreditation certificate is about like walking into a new barbecue joint on a nice warm August afternoon. You notice they got a C plus on the wall. Are you going to stop and try their egg salad? All that certificate tells you in that laboratory is they got a C. It does not tell you that they actually exceeded any of those criteria. It just means they meant it. Washington DC lab is an accredited laboratory. There are plenty of discussions of places where an accredited laboratory has had stuff go south. Peter could also talk a lot about what it looks like for a lab to reimagine what quality control looks like. It doesn't have to necessarily be that complicated or expensive. What Peter has done, he's invested real resources in what Houston Forensic Science Center is doing in a way. Not only do restaurants have, you know, in some states at least, they have the ABC, but how do they get the ABC? Like sometimes inspectors will come and look to see whether there's food on the floor and rats running around. And it's not just, you know, you're told in advance. Someone might come and look at uh, the conditions in your restaurant, clean up that day and no other day. Uh, you know, accreditation is a good thing, but mostly it involves reviewing a lab's policies on paper to make sure that they have the bare minimum. Random audits don't necessarily be, you know, enormously burdensome. I mean, look what happened in D.C. where... It wasn't random, but the prosecutors decided to just have two outside people look at that one firearms case. They uncovered a huge mess of problems in terms of the accuracy and the integrity of the firearms work in that lab. You know, you could have someone outside look at one case in a thousand, one case in 10,000. One case a year would be more than what, what most labs do. Instead, they rely on, you know, maybe a colleague looking over the work and they call that, they call it a verification. It's usually not blind or independent. In most places, they, it's really just sort of looking it over. That's not what happens in labs or in hospitals or, or any company that has, does anything involving like water or air, right? There would be environmental inspectors that can do unannounced site visits anytime. But that doesn't exist in the forensic system? Yeah. Why is it that the forensic system doesn't work that way? Or, you know, clinical labs, any company that has like stuff that involves like releasing things into air or water? Crime labs somehow have been kind of immune from all that, maybe because they grew up in police department basements. There's been a tradition in this country of not really regulating police like or law enforcement like other regulatory agencies. That's really changed over this last year in response to Floyd. We've had like 3,000 laws introduced in this country to regulate police. Only 10% have passed, but there's been a flurry of new idea that, oh, maybe we actually regulate police. But that hasn't been the tradition. And for the same way, like even though crime labs, like, act like real labs, they aren't regulated like real labs. Okay, it's time for the MCLE credit code. The code for this interview is 10615. Again, that's 10615. Now back to the interview. Let's talk about blind testing. What do you mean when you describe blind testing in forensics? Is that similar to kind of a, a double blind study in science? So I grew up, started my career in military system. Um, 
Um, I was Navy officer, ran with the Navy's drug screening laboratories. The Navy had some of its 60 Minutes moments in its drug testing program back in the 80s. And as a reaction to that, they ended up implementing quite a bit of the quality assurance measures that you would like to see elsewhere. Benefits in that, it is a very defined sample type. It's a very restrict set of things you're testing for. It's really relatively simple relative to what happens in a crime laboratory. But I started my career with a blind testing program that it was just part of what you did, that there are samples that are submitted to the laboratory that the laboratory doesn't even know that they are controlled, constructed samples with a known answer. And within the laboratory, you put in to workflow known constructed samples with a known answer to test the entire system. So with that background, and at this lab, what we have stood up is just that, an extensive blind quality control system that we routinely test everything in the company other than crime scene. I keep looking for volunteers to be a blind crime scene, not finding many of those. But we manufacture materials to look like those cases, insert them into the workflow at a point where analysts don't know whether they're a blinded control or an actual case sample, and we target 5% of our output to be those controlled samples. Oh, that's relatively relatively high. It's amounted to more than 2,000 cases that we've run through the system since we started five years ago. And yeah, that's it's a big commitment. It's a big financial commitment. I can do these things, though, because I've got a seven-person, seven women, it's all, all women in our quality control group that reports directly to me as CEO. We can do that because we're 210 employees. Keep in mind, half of the laboratories in the country have fewer than 23 employees and more than a quarter of them have fewer than nine employees. This is part of the challenge for the entire system is these are things that you would like to see done, but how in the world do you effectively do it when you're a tiny lab in the middle of Wyoming that's got nine people in it? But that routine testing is way beyond anything that's a requirement in any of the accreditation systems, anything like that. But I don't know how else you continuously test the entire system, test it to the point of failure, and if you don't test to the point of failure, how do you know where stuff doesn't work? How do you know where limits are? How do you know to be able to say, this is, in fact, the point at which we can say with confidence is a result, and beyond that point, I can't say with confidence that's the result, unless you test it to the point of failure. Peter, you mentioned that one of the mantras that you and your lab lives by is not just doing the testing correctly, it's doing it in time. Why is it so important to get the data quickly? Wouldn't, if you got the right result months later, couldn't it then be fed back into the system to get to the right result? You know, I wish, but really when you stop and think about what the system itself has to do, there are clocks that the rest of the system has to adhere to. Speedy trial demands and time limits on warrants and time limits on these things and that's kind of the administrative end. And then there's just time limits on people's memories. Laboratories are not the only component within the system that struggle with confirmational bias. The sooner you've got objective evidence introduced into the investigative process, that helps reduce 
confirmational bias that investigators and DAs and courts have in the process as well. So when that objective scientific evidence is available in the system can make a huge difference in how the entire system functions. Lydell Grant, I think, is a really good example on this, that had probabilistic genotyping been available at the original point and the result that not only was he excluded from the original DNA and there was another profile that was included, I'm sure that entire trial would have evolved very differently than being dependent on eyewitness testimony that obviously was not correct. And Professor, how about when the system gets it wrong? Forensic science is one of the leading contributors to wrongful convictions. Why is it not more useful in overturning them and and doing so expeditiously? Part of it is that it just, I mean, so 95% or so of felony cases get plea bargains. There is no appeal in those cases. No one's reviewing them. There's no lawyer working on a case once someone pleads guilty. The case is over. The few cases that go to a trial, there will be a appeal, which will typically be brief. You can bring up stuff that happened at trial. You can't bring up evidence that wasn't part of the record. And so if you want some new forensic tests or you know someone to look over the evidence or something like that, that will not happen. And once your appeal is done, you don't have a lawyer, except in a death penalty case. And so uh, unless you're wealthy and you can have a lawyer and try to get access to evidence, just try to file a post-conviction motion, you don't normally get discovery or access to evidence unless there's a really unusual reason, post-conviction, and you're on your own in terms of getting a lawyer. It just doesn't happen. It's very, very hard to reopen cases in this country. And, and that's in the cases where there's a trial and there's some right to an appeal, some right to post-conviction, although no right to have the state pay for your lawyer. People have this idea that there's like years of challenges in criminal cases. That happens in death penalty cases. Given the stakes, people will get lawyers appointed through, you know, appeal, state habeas, federal habeas. But in regular criminal cases, people plead guilty and they waive all their rights and get a brief appeal. And that's it. Sad reality in a lot of cases and I think this is pretty true across the whole country. One of the most litigated cases we see is driving under the influence of alcohol because your typical drunk driver, and we've put out some publications about the demographics, your typical drunk driver is a middle-aged white male, has money to provide that challenge. It frustrates me to see misdemeanor DUIs have aggressive, very competent defense when somebody facing 15 years for a drug charge, nothing. No support whatsoever. Well, let's not leave it on that note. Can we talk a little <laughs> bit about how to make the system better? What are some of the reforms? Your lab in particular has been a guiding light for forensic science. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that and what the path forward might be. I get asked a lot of what are the things that could be replicated out of the circumstance here in Houston. I caution people that part of why we are able to do what we do here is the scale of what we are. There are very few labs the size of this, and that gives us a latitude to do things that I think a lot of labs would love to do. There's just no mechanical way they could do it. Setting that part aside, I think things that have made a huge difference in people's ability to trust this laboratory is the structure of it that puts us at a better level of parity with the other components of the justice system. 
the term independent gets tossed around a lot and honestly gets weaponized a lot of what independent is, what independent means. And I found myself talking more in terms of better parity that the laboratory here operates at as more of an equal partner to law enforcement and to the DAs. I am in a much better position to have an adult conversation with the other components of the justice system and both respect their component, the role that they play, and demand that they respect the role that the laboratory plays. It is a different role that is necessary and essential, and it is not the same as law enforcement. It is not the same as prosecution. It's not the same as defense, and it demands to be respected. The structure here has given more of that ability. Now, whether this structure of an independent board of directors and how this thing is set up, is that necessarily the way to get there? In some places, yeah. It may not necessarily be that way for every place. But any place that it can be set up that the laboratory operates at better parity with the other components, that I think is key. Part of that is putting the laboratory in a position where the laboratory has the authority and the permission to say, here's something we screwed up, here's what it is, here's all the components of it. If I go to the media with it, you may not like what's going to come out of this, and yeah, it may be a pain in the butt for you for your cases, but you can't stop me from saying, here's where we made an error, here's what it is, here's what we did about it. That transparency within the laboratory, I think, is a vital component of it as well. It's part of a dependence, right? This is an organization that stands on its own and is accountable for its mistakes, and but and also has the power to allocate its budget and make decisions without police or prosecutors saying, no, 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 we'd rather you not spend money on quality control or whatever. It's also part of independence means that kind of internal oversight. You're not counting on the courts or someone else to assure quality. You have to do it on your own. And so some people have talked about the suspension of all work at the D.C. lab. Oh, wait a minute. That was like they spent a lot of money in Washington, D.C. to make that an independent lab meaning that it sort of has control of its own budget and there was a scientific advisory board that met every once in a while. But in terms of actual independence, you know, given they weren't doing blind proficiency testing, they didn't have the kind of quality control that you'd want a lab to have, formal independence in terms of who they reported to didn't actually bring with it the kind of accountability that you'd want a truly independent organization that stands on its own to have. Dr. Peter Stout, Professor Brandon Garrett, thank you for zooming in with us today. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.